The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. All right, welcome to the Disability Law Show. Love being back. It's uh, Skulls here along with Martin Willems. He'll be doing all the heavy lifting like he does every week, right? But you can always reach out to Martin any other time uh, to have a... You know, a question answered of your own, and use the phone number, I guess, first. That would be a, a good place to uh, to start with that, one 821 5900 That would be help at disabilityrights.ca. We will get to a ton of emails because they've been coming in here fast and furious over the week. So uh, that is on the way, and I want to get uh, right off the top. Back to basics, Martin, mental health LTD claims. Again, information you've thrown out there that people may not know, may have forgotten, or really need if they're de- dealing with a long-term disability insurer, maybe they've been denied, maybe they've been told to appeal a denial. It can just be uh, it can just be an absolute mess, pal. So we got a couple things. We can start right in on these, and I'll start asking you the questions. Or if you have a week that was to kick it all off, we can go either way, pal. What do you think? I think starting off with the back-to-basics of mental health claims is a good idea. And the reason for that is we want to do a, a little bit of a primer and a refresher, as you mentioned, because mm-hmm. I've mentioned this before on the show the vast majority of long-term disability claims filed in this country and in the world actually um, are all related to mental health cases so they make up the biggest proportion of ltd disability claims that have been filed and it's always a good idea to speak about this because there has been in the past huge stigma related to mental health cases Obviously, that is changing, but there is still a component of that. And I want to, this morning or today, have a discussion about what evidence is required, etc. But I'm happy to have you lead us through the seven points, and I'll respond as we go. Love it. These are culminated. Of course, Martin put these together from a variety of emails and questions over the last uh, few months for sure. Number one, what evidence is required when I have a mental illness that is preventing me from working and I wish to submit that LTD claim? What do you think, pal? You know... I like this question because it comes up every week. As you know, at our office, we have offices in BC and Alberta and Ontario, and we mm-hmm. represent people throughout Canada other than in Quebec and the territories. And our team, meaning all the lawyers throughout these provinces, field questions from people who have been denied long-term disability claims related to their mental health. And the question always is, what should I have submitted? What should I have done here? Because... And this is what my response normally is. If your doctor is going to put on the attending physician statement that you have a major depressive disorder or you have adrenalized anxiety disorder or even if you've got PTSD or bipolar disorder and therefore you cannot work, your claim is going to be denied. The doctor has, and you have to, explain why it is that you are unable to work under the terms of your policy. So what does that mean? Many people with mental health disorders do work. So some people have depression, they take medication on an ongoing basis, yet they work. So what makes it so that you, with your condition, cannot work? I always say in these uh, situations, the diagnosis is important. That is a true statement. But it is not the most important thing when you are assessing, when an insurance company is assessing whether a person is totally disabled within the meaning of a policy. That means that we have to focus on what are the functional restrictions and limitations. In other words, the functional impairment. 
what prevents you from working because of the illness that you have? What are your symptoms? A disability policy, which is a contract, requires the person to when submitting a claim to provide evidence that they are unable to perform the essential duties of their occupation due to an injury or an illness. Now, when we're speaking about mental health, as you often hear from insurance companies, they would say, well, these are subjective conditions. They're not seen on an MRI or a CT scan. They're subjective, meaning that you are reporting to your doctor what your symptoms are, and your doctor is responding to what you're saying to them when completing the forms. So they often say we require objective evidence, which under the terms of the policy isn't generally a requirement. So then we go back to this big question, what evidence can I submit? So when you do go to your family doctor, if you don't have a psychiatrist, you have your doctor complete what is called the attending physician statement, which is the first medical form that you will submit when you submit a claim for LPD, long-term disability. And the doctor will be required to identify what the diagnosis or diagnoses are. And if it is a major depressive disorder or a generalized anxiety disorder, there will also be a question related to what are your objective observations? What are the symptoms? What are the complaints? And this is where the key, where it is key to understand what prevents you from working. And it may be that you work in the financial industry, dealing with clients. Uh, there's a difficult economic environment as we speak. Some people are going through very financial, difficult financial times. They may become irate. So as a person working in the financial institution, you have to deal with these clients. You already have some vulnerability. And you have now been diagnosed with a generalized anxiety disorder and a major depressive disorder. So what are your restrictions and limitations? It may be that you have panic attacks that manifest themselves physically, that you have uh, heart palpitations, that you break out in sweat, that you cannot focus, that you cannot concentrate, that you don't want to deal with other people, you have social withdrawal, you cannot sleep or you oversleep, um, you have brain issues in terms of brain fog, you have cognitive impairment that you cannot focus, you cannot concentrate, you cannot multitask, you cannot meet deadlines. Deadlines add to your anxiety, which puts more pressure on you, you cannot focus as I said before. Um, if there is suicidal thoughts, if that is being addressed, if you are taking medications in terms of your mental health, and those medications also lead to you feeling brain, that you have a feeling of brain fogginess, that you cannot focus, concentrate, etc. If they impact your cognitive functioning, these are the things that you focus on and that the doctor should focus on when completing the attending physician statement and when you submit your statement to explain why it is that you cannot work. Now remember, <clears throat> if it is related to the workplace, this is a very difficult situation for people because if you just say there's a bully or a harasser at work and I cannot work because I now have a mental health disorder because I've been bullied, chances are that your claim is going to be denied as well because the insurance company may say, your situation is related to your workplace. This is really a workplace issue. It's not a disability issue. Remember the test for disability. You have to prove that you cannot perform the duties of your own occupation, not your own job, your own occupation, which means then that when the claim is being assessed, the insurance company is looking at, 
if you're able to perform the duties of your occupation at a different location, at a different branch, or even for a different employer, where the bullying and harassment is not present, you are able to perform your duties, therefore you are not totally disabled. It's not as simple as that, though, because once a person has been subjected to that, they need to recover, right? It's not simply remove the person from the bullying and harassment and that they miraculously now find to go back to work. In some instances, some people may feel that they're able to go back to work, and that's a different situation. But for most, they now need to be treated. They need to recover. And for many of them, when this happens, the bullying and harassment in the workplace, it is in the context of the person already having had a mental health disorder that has now been worsened or exacerbated by that conduct to the extent that whatever gains they have had made or whatever function that they did have in the context of living with a mental health illness has been completely eroded. And they go back to square one where they need to recover, they need to go for, through treatment in order to allow them to return to any workplace. So if that is the situation, make sure that the doctor, when completing the forms, makes that known to the insurance company in the context of this is a person who is totally disabled within the meaning of the policy that they cannot perform the duties of their own occupation. If you have a psychiatrist or a psychologist involved, have them provide letters and supportive evidence as well as to why it is that you cannot work. So to conclude, what evidence do you submit as much as possible and focus on providing evidence in terms of your functional impairment and that usually and preferably would come from your treatment providers. Next question is this, pal. Now, if my claim has been approved, but I'm approaching the uh, the own the own occupation period, what exactly do I need to prove to any occupation phase to continue to receive benefits? Because you know what's coming on the other end is getting cut off. Right? You, exactly, and you know what is coming. And you know this is not just relevant to the mental health claims; it's obviously, it's re- relevant to all claims. So, I think as a primer and going back to basics again, what does this mean? What does any occupation mean? Because people, when you anybody who hears this as a layperson, and when I say to you, well, I think you could go work in, in any other occupation, you're going to rely on what I'm saying. Any occupation means any occupation. But that's not what it means in terms of a disability policy. In a disability policy, if you have two definitions, the first one is you cannot perform the duties of your own occupation. The next one is any occupation. That means that you have to provide evidence that you cannot perform the duties of another occupation for which you have the transferable skills based on your education, your training, and your experience within the context of your medical restrictions and limitations, and that would pay you a certain percentage of your pre-disability income. If you had been making $200,000 a year, the insurance company cannot say to you under the any occupation phase, oh, well, you can go work in a different occupation um, in a sedentary setting where you would only need to work three or four days that would pay you even forty dollars or $60,000. It's not commensurate to your pre-disability income. So when we look at what evidence should be submitted, it is focusing again from the doctor's perspective what are the restrictions? In what inf- situation can this person not function? Can they not focus? Can they not concentrate? Can they not multitask? Can they not comprehend information, new information? And then you ask, in what context would they be able to work with those things in place? So remember, if your claim were to be denied at the change of definition, do not accept that the insurance company is correct. Reach out to us so we can offer you a free consultation and review your claim with the denial letter 
with the medical evidence and discuss with you what your options are moving more of those back to basics questions are coming up got to take a short break get into that and get back from it and continue uh, to do so in the meantime write this number down use it on your own time to call martin and his team 1-855-821-5900 help at disabilityrights.ca is the email address as well we'll continue with more of the disability law show hang in there you're listening to a paid commercial program unless otherwise identified guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser the opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. And we are back. Disability Law Show. Reaching out anytime to Martin Willems is easy to do. Make that phone call. 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. For any other questions, you can use the website freely and anonymously. Called MyDisabilityQuestions.com. We are right in the middle of this uh, this particular list of, uh, of questions. Back to basics. Mental health LTD claims. A third question is this, Martin. Uh, if the insurer is paying me my LTD benefits and is insisting I participate in a rehab program, what are my options if I'm already seeing a psychologist for counseling? What do I do? Okay, so this is something that comes up every now and again. Um, back to basics. Why can the insurance company force you or insist that you participate in a rehab program? Remember, the policy is a contract, and the contract has rights and obligations and provisions. One of the obligations at your end as the person making the claim is that you have to be under the appropriate care of, under the regular care of a physician and following through with appropriate treatment. There's also a provision that provides that the insurance company can have you participate in a rehabilitation program, which the insurance company deems to be appropriate for your condition. Now, my position on something like this is that the insurance company, when they rely on this provision, they have to look at the evidence as it is reasonable, right? They cannot, in my mind, force you to participate in the rehabilitation program if you are already involved in proper treatment, which is appropriate under the terms of the policy. Now, it is never as white or black as it is. There's always gray. So in this context, if you have been seeing a psychologist for a period of time, they may be looking at what type of treatment is the psychologist providing it may be that the insurance company says well we want this person to be treated by a psychologist whom we choose and we will pay for and that psychologist has to employ return back to work minded therapy or counseling now objectively there's nothing wrong with that, right? In helping a person get back to work and providing evidence, support in terms of treatment. But it is not a across the board approach that works for everyone. A person may not be in a position where they can now focus on getting back to the return to work focused therapy, because that normally is referred to as work hardening therapy, where the person has already addressed most of their psychological or psychiatric issues, and they are now being provided with some therapy, which will harden their emotional state to the extent that they could probably succeed if they did go back to work. What happens if a person is not at that point in their treatment yet? If they cannot even focus on that, because they are dealing with significant psychological childhood trauma, which has now resurfaced, which where that has to be readdressed. 
or addressed now for the very first time? Should they then be placed in a position where a, they are dealing with a psychologist or the therapist who is simply trying to assist them by hardening their mental state so that they can go back to work? No, it's not appropriate. And that is why this is not a catch-all provision for everyone. And when the insurance companies rely on this, they feel emboldened by this. So our policy provides that you have to participate in this rehabilitation program or we will terminate you if you deny, in, terminate your claim, in other words, if you refuse to do this. And this is where your psychologists and your treatment providers really need to step up, where if the insurance company is insisting that you do this, I would say get the insurance company to put in writing what exactly it is that they are insisting that you participate in, what type of treatment it is, with whom it is, and the frequency and the duration of it. Then submit that to your treatment providers and have them comment from a treatment perspective, because they now know you, they've been treating you for a period of time, whether they deem this type of treatment that the insurance company is insisting on, whether it is appropriate for your condition. Because quite often, if you put somebody who is very vulnerable in a position like that, it may be that that treatment itself may actually worsen or exacerbate the business condition, which means to the insurance company that they're looking at somebody who is going to be on claim for a much longer period because whatever gains may have been made have now been eroded. And the person needs to be treated for an ongoing period of time where they're going to have to pay LTD benefits on an ongoing basis. Sometimes they may listen to the treatment provider and agree. Other times they may say, well, no, this is our position. You're going to do this or we're going to cut you off. And if they did do that in the context of you having provided the letter from your treatment providers stating why this treatment that they are wanting you to participate in is inappropriate, I would say that there's a basis, if they were to terminate the claim, mm -hmm. there's a basis to pursue damages as well. It all depends on the facts, of course. But again, do not feel that you are in a position where you don't have any power or any say or any rights and simply accept that you have to do what the insurance company tells you to do. Yes, there is a policy, but the policy has rights and obligations for both people, for both parties. Right. And at the insurance companies. Um, side when they say you have to participate in this rehab program i will also say to them you have a duty to act in good faith you have a duty to adjudicate this claim in good faith you have a duty to treat the insured meaning the person making the claim in a compassionate and reasonable manner under the terms of this policy and if the treatment providers are telling you that this treatment that you are insisting on is inappropriate and has the risk of worsening the person's condition you should listen to them and not force somebody who is already vulnerable into a situation where their condition may worsen. And again, if that were to happen, I believe that there may be a claim for damages. So if you are in a position like that where the insurance company is insisting that you participate in a rehab program, they may be right, right? Wow. That, I'm not saying that this happens in all cases, but if they're not, let's have a discussion about what this means what evidence you may need from the treatment providers. And if they do terminate your claim, this is where we step in and we represent clients where they can focus on the treatment that they do need with their treatment providers. And we take over the claim through a legal claim and we are pursuing a settlement on behalf of our clients while they are able to focus on their treatment and they don't need to communicate with the insurance company any longer because all communications go through us. 
Again, guys, reaching out one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. Question number four from the uh, from our topic, the back to basics LTD. If the insurer has sent me for an IME, an independent medical examination with a psychiatrist, am I able to get a copy of that report once it's done? This is a great question because it comes up again every now and again. Are you entitled to receive a copy of your report? We know that through the Freedom of Information provisions and provinces that you are entitled to request a copy of your claims file from the insurance company and they have to provide it to you. I've seen insurers say we're not comfortable in providing an insured with a report by a psychiatrist because they're concerned how the person may respond to that. I suppose that there is some, I can understand that in certain instances, but what they then should do is provide a copy of that report to the insured, the person making the claim, to their treatment providers, be it the family physician or be it a psychiatrist. If they were to refuse to do that, then I think that they've got a problem because they probably will be relying on that report to some degree. And if they don't provide the report, yet they're making a, they're taking a position as to the contents of the report, they're really putting the person in a very difficult position because they don't know how to respond to it. They don't know in what context the report was written and what recommendations may have been made. So it is crucial that if a report is written, in other words, the insurance company sends you through to an independent medical examiner, which is someone the insurance company hires. They don't work for the insurance company. They're not an employee. They're the third party, but yet they pay for this report. And the report is done in the context of what is provided under the policy where the insurance company is allowed to have you assessed by somebody who is a specialist in the area of, well, in the medical experience, I suppose, in the medical area as to what your claim is in, in terms of a mental health claim, then you should be in a position to get a copy of that report through, probably, as I said, um, providing it to your, you know, your treatment provider because then they can assess it and review it with you. I think it is a good idea, though, to have it sent to the doctors because then they can review it with you and they can discuss what other treatment recommendations are made. Remember the reason why insurers send people for these assessments. It's not to provide you with treatment. There's not going to be a, a patient-doctor relationship created by this. The IME expert is hired by the insurance company so the contract is between them and the insurer to provide an assessment and that assessment is done specifically to see whether they agree that you still meet the definition of total disability under the policy and quite often whether they agree that your treatment is appropriate and if not they may make some treatment recommendations so it is it just makes sense that the report has to be provided to your treatment provider Fifth question, if the IME psychiatrist makes treatment recommendations, there you go, should I simply follow these? Uh, what if I've already tried the treatments recommended? They did not work, or maybe this, Martin, they've worsened my condition. Then what do I do? I've seen this happen every now and again. Where, oh. And this is what the insurance company would do. They would say, well, we've received the report from our IME doctor. They may even deny the claim and say, well, we don't believe that you're being appropriately treated, which, again... If that happens, please reach out to us because I don't agree with that. Um, but if the insurance company is providing the report to your doctor and it says, well, these are the recommendations and this is what we expect you to do, 
This doctor may have seen you for an hour or two. This may have been their only interaction with you. Did they actually review the file? Was the file actually provided to the uh, assessor in its entirety? Because quite often what you would see is a person may have tried various antidepressants. These antidepressants may have worsened the condition, may have created side effects. Some people are just not amenable to take medications because of that, because they have tried various treatment uh, in terms of not just antidepressants, but other medications as well. And they've had adverse side effects. I've spoken to many people who have tried certain antidepressants where the conditions were worsened to the point that they became suicidal. So it's very serious. And if it hasn't worked and now this person steps in, not knowing your full history, and then says, we think that this is what you should be doing. That's, again, where your treatment provider steps in and says, well, no, we've tried these medications. This is not an appropriate treatment recommendation. And then I would say, have them put it in writing, send it to the insurance company. And if, again, they denied your claim because you're refusing to, to follow those treatment recommendations in the context of already having tried it, or your treatment provider says it's not appropriate, I would say that there may be a damages claim there as well. So no, you do not simply need to follow the treatment recommendations. As with everything, speak to your treatment providers, speak to your psychiatrist, and have them weigh in whether they agree with the treatment recommendations. Because sometimes that does happen. The doctor may say, okay, well, I hear them. Let's try it and see how it goes. And then you may do it. You have a duty to follow through with appropriate treatment advice. But if an assessor is suggesting you do certain things, always have that discussion with your treatment providers whether they agree and if they agree fine but if they do not agree have them put in writing why they do not submit that to the insurance company and see where it goes if they deny you reach out to us if they accept it and move on which is the preferable way to do mm-hmm. deal with this great but if not you know where to come and we got lots more of this on the way, but in the meantime, we'll take a short break. Phone number, 1-855-821-5900. More quick uh, bits of, uh, of knowledge about LTD. If you want to search them up really quickly, not spending too much time, simply go to ltdfaq.ca. Again, ltdfaq, frequently asked questions.ca to do that. And the email for Martin anytime is help at disabilityrights.ca. Number six and seven coming up as we continue our uh, first topic of the day and back to basics, mental health LTD. TD claims that is on the way after a short break, so we'll continue. Stand by with more of the Disability Law Show. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. All right, Disability Law Show is back, continuing. Thank you so much for hanging around. John Scholes here, and joining me, of course, Martin Willems, Sam Fearu, to Mark and LLP. Reach out to Martin anytime. He's got a great crew working for him, and that is 1-855-821-5900. They can answer all your questions on that phone call, or the email is help at disabilityrights.ca. Our Back to Basics segment continues on here, pal. Mental health ltd claims we said we had uh put together six questions culminated from a bunch of emails over the last few months number six uh actually seven actually number six is this if my condition is not improving and i've tried counseling what should i do to abide by my obligations under the policy good question you know this came up recently so that's why it's been included here Uh, somebody was attending counseling because they, they 
they believed in talk therapy. So attending counseling, but things were not getting better. Having been seen by a doctor for the past 18 months and taking medication as well, but the same medication at the same dosage, counseling was recommended in the hopes of things getting better, but they're not getting better. And now the question is, is there anything else that I should be doing um, because I'm concerned when it comes to the strange of definition that they're going to be looking at my claim more closely. And are they going to criticize me in terms of what I am doing or m m probably more importantly, what I'm not doing. Right. So under the terms of the policy, as we've said before, you have an obligation to see your doctor on a regular basis and be under an appropriate treatment protocol for this the specific disability that you are claiming cannot is preventing you from working so in a situation like this where counseling isn't working you've been seeing your gp for 18 months you're taking one medication and it's just been at the same dosage i expect or suspect that the insurance company may be looking at that more closely and may look at that in terms of you're not under appropriate treatment, you're not getting better, what is it that you're doing in terms of getting better, and may even deny the claim on that basis. So go to the doctor. In a situation like this, I would recommend having a discussion with the family doctor and say to the doctor, look, I've been trying this treatment now, I've been trying the counseling, I've been trying this medication, I'm on it, my condition is improving. Is it not time for me to be seen by a psychiatrist considering that my condition is not improving, the medications is not really working. Right. The doctor may say, well, let's look at putting you on a different medication or let's look at increasing the dosage of the current medication. But also, maybe let's refer you to a psychiatrist because we know that there is a very long wait list to see psychiatrists in all provinces. So at least make the referral. Have you put on a wait list? And in the meantime, the doctor may agree to try a different medication or increase the dosage. And in terms of the counseling, the doctor may say, well, let's try different types of counseling or maybe see somebody else. It really is so fact dependent, right? But if it is a status quo that is being maintained and it has been so for the past year, I can see that insurance company may look at this and say, well, clearly you're not getting better. So we don't think that this treatment protocol is actually appropriate and steps should be taken to look at other avenues, look at other options for treatment. Now, they may say that to you or they may simply deny your claim because they may say, well, these are all the things that we're looking at. There's a change of definition coming up, even if it isn't a yeah. change of definition, but in that context, what steps are being taken to get better? And we think that you actually have the potential of improving and may deny the claim at that point. As with everything, with all these questions, if that happens, again, contact us, have a discussion with us what your options are. As suppose before we get to the next point, the message to every person who listens to this, whether it's you or your family member or your friend or a colleague who is struggling with mental health, we say this in every show, make sure that you see your doctor on a very regular basis. Make sure that you report to your doctor what your restrictions and limitations are, what your struggles are, because many people decide that they, they, they don't want to speak about it. They don't yeah, want to go to the doctor. 
and it, it's difficult. I get that. I, I really understand that. You don't want to go have that discussion. You don't want to relive it every time. But if you're making a claim with an insurance company, and if you are on claim with an insurance company, you're in this relationship, right? And there's an expectation of you. Even though it is difficult, these are things that you must do in order to maintain your benefits. So see the doctor regularly, report to the doctor what's going on, so that if your claim is denied or if further evidence is requested from your doctor, that your doctor will be in an informed position to provide a report or a letter or evidence to the insurance company so that the insurance company can understand why it is that you remain unable to work, what is being done in order to treat you in the hopes of having getting improvement, but also what steps may still be taken in terms of treatment so that you and your doctor are always on top of this because the insurance company will be looking at this and if there's an angle for them to deny the claim, they likely will. Yeah. And when you're dealing with a mental health claim, it's so difficult because you're not motivated, you're fatigued, you're not interested in really speaking to people. So it is a very difficult situation, which I understand, but I implore anybody listening to this, please listen to what we're discussing this morning, because it may be that if you take these steps, that your claim may not be denied. Get to seven quickly. This one, the final one of the uh, back to basics LTD mental claims is really a common question. I know we get all the time, uh, Martin, that is what options do I have if my claim is denied? Denial letters speak about a right to appeal at the bottom, but also speak about the limitation period. What does that mean? Good question. And again, this comes up in every situation, not just with mental health claims. So the insurance company may be looking at your claim or may have paid your claim and is now denying it or denying it from the outset. And they say they may say to you, in this five or six page letter that you have the right to appeal and you may have a certain period to do that. And then at the bottom of the letter, they may say, um, there's this limitation period and you have to refer to the insurance app. And then I speak to people and they have no clue what that means. It's very confusing. So they may think, well, the limitation period is the appeal period and the limitation period is actually the period provided for the appeal, which, there's a long discussion, and we may have to go into this in this next segment as well. Yeah. But the, the appeal is an internal mechanism utilized by insurance companies. They offer this to you, but do not be fooled. The appeal is not an appeal that goes to a separate entity. Because the word appeal, you would think, well, I'm going to appeal this decision, is going to be to going to an independent entity that is objective, and that is going to look at this from the outset, not influenced by what was done before. But it is the exact same insurance company who is considering your appeal, who is considering the new evidence that you may provide in the context of having already denied the claim. So it's not like you end up in a, in a situation where it goes to a third party, which is entirely at arm's length. That's not the situation. It is the exact same insurer who is reviewing the claim to make a decision on its own denial. So think about that. But let's speak about the limitation period in the segment that follows. And we will do that. Uh, I want to get to a short break. We got uh, lots of emails coming here, guys. Lots of emails. So uh, keep sending those along anytime. That is help at disabilityrights.ca. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And the phone number anytime on your own time is one 821 5900 we continue more disability law show coming right up stay with us you're listening to a paid commercial program unless otherwise identified guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser 
The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. And back with it indeed, Disability Law Show. few minutes to go. Reach out after the show. Always encouraged to do so. Reach Martin and his team, one 855 help at disabilityrights.ca. We covered on the last uh, question number seven of the Back to Basics, Martin. That was about uh, denial letters, appeals. How about that limitation period? That, that gives people a lot of stress, yeah? It does, and specifically because they don't know what it is. Um, so, again, if the insurance company is offering you an appeal, it is an internal process. Most disability, disability policies don't even speak about an appeal. So if they give you, you've got 30 days or 60 days or 90 days or whatever it is, if the policy doesn't speak about an appeal, where are they coming up with these timelines? So I would say if you want to go down that road, which, again, you're appealing to the same entity, then... You can look at the timeline that they've offered you, but when you look at the limitation period, that is something that is set in stone. And that is something that is set out in the Insurance Act in your province. So in BC and Alberta, we know that the limitation period is two years. The big question is, when does it start to run? Does it start to run from the date that they denied your claim? Or if you have been paid, it starts to run from the date that the next payment would have had to be made. And it's two years, but it's important to remember that if you are deciding to pursue an appeal, the limitation period, meaning the timeline within which you must file a legal claim if your claim remains unpaid and not approved, Mm -hmm. that timeline continues to run. So if you decide, and I speak to people who do this, if you decide to appeal and you're going into your third appeal and it's now going into month 18, don't think that the limitation period starts to run when your the appeal process is done. It started to run way back when they first denied this claim or when your last payment was made. And it continues to run if you are pursuing an appeal. It's extremely important to understand that because if you miss that limitation period, very likely you will not have a claim to pursue. So again, when you receive that letter, my advice speak to a disability lawyer so you can understand what your options are. And if you did want to do an appeal, the lawyer can actually speak to you about what that means. But if it's a legal claim, that's what we do. We get involved. We represent clients. They don't need to deal with the insurance company. All communications go through us, and we pursue a settlement that is, in our minds, justifiable to our clients. All right, let's get into our, uh, our email, pal. First one says, Martin, my spouse is on my insurance uh, is on my insurance through my job. She had a stroke and no longer can work. The insurer says she has no benefits because she's not the primary policyholder. I've been paying for both of us for years. What gives? Interesting question. So, when you so firstly, I'm assuming that the person who wrote this email is employed, has group coverage through the employer. And under that group coverage, he has, he or she has dependent coverage as well, yeah, which right. usually would be extended health, dental, maybe life insurance, but very, very seldom. I haven't seen this happen where there would be long-term disability insurance for a spouse who is not an employee under the group policy. Right. So if they're saying she has no benefits, because she's not the primary policy holder, I'm as, uh, 
I'm assuming that what they mean there is she's not entitled to long-term disability benefits because she is not the primary person insured under the policy because that person, meaning the person employed, right? that person will have long-term disability coverage, but not the spouse. But having said all of that, it always goes down to what is the language of the policy. So reach out to us so we can get more information and actually see whether there is the, – the, the, my understanding may be different as to what these facts are. But if I understand the facts correct, it's very unlikely that the spouse will have long-term disability coverage through the the employed partner's coverage. Uh, roll on down here. Another email passes. Uh, Martin, I'm on LTD and I'm waiting list to see a psychiatrist. My insurer has offered to pay for an online consultation with one. Am I required to do this? Is there any risk to doing this since it's set up by the insurer? So it's a strange situation to me, considering that it is a psychiatrist. If it says that my insurer has offered to pay for an online consultation with one, I'm wondering whether this is the insurance company saying that we will pay for a online an assessment with a psychiatrist through an independent medical examination. Remember what we discussed earlier today. If it is, we're going to have you assessed through an IME, it is, you don't really have a choice because that's what we're going to do. And the assessment there is to be done to see whether the person is disabled and what treatment may be required or is recommended. I haven't seen a situation where an insurance company pays for a consultation with a psychiatrist because psychiatrists, I don't think, can do that. It's a different situation if it because you in the context of psychiatry and general practitioners, you, they cannot be paid to see people, right? It's done through the medical system. Um, if it is a psychologist, which makes more sense to me, do you have to do that? Is there any risk you're doing that? Well, if the insurance company is insisting that you do it, then have the discussion with your doctor again. But if you're not seeing anybody in terms of a psychologist because you cannot afford it and the the insurance company is insisting that you do that through the rehab provisions, very likely you will have to do that. And if not, you're at risk of them denying your claim. So you should, but again, reach out to you. Is that, is that a matter of the policy as well? It depends on what the policy says, definitely. Uh, most policies will provide that you have to follow through with, as I said, people recommend a treatment advice, but also no. rehab provisions under the policy. So if you're only seeing your family doctor, this thing that you should be doing counseling and you're not, then probably you will have to do this. But again, if it's a psychiatrist, I don't see psychiatrists offering pay for fee services. Yeah, and they're offered to pay for it anyway, so it's like, you know, <laughs> I mean, at that point, they're, they're not telling you you got to pay for it, then you got some ground to stand up, but they're flipping the bill, then I guess you just go and get the report, hopefully, for your own doctor, your your own treating uh your own treating doctors, I guess. We have uh, just about up against the wall for time, but thank you so much for the emails. We hope those first seven questions helped you out. If not, uh, lead off of the phone call next time you uh, next time you think about it. Martin's always standing by with his crew. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred is how you do that. You can also email help at disabilityrights.ca, and for another uh, website to ask your questions, type them in searchable database. So maybe your questions already come up. Save you a bit of time, right? That's called my disabilityquestions.com free and anonymous use that whenever you like my disabilityquestions.com and we'll catch you next time right here on the disability law show the preceding was a paid commercial program unless otherwise identified the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser the opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of chorus entertainment